crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Noctegal. I am coming to you today from Jerusalem, Israel. Thank you very much for listening in. On the second half of today's show, I'm going to be talking to Christopher Eames. He is an archaeologist and also novice historian that writes for Watch Jerusalem. And he's written recently about Moses and the early years of Moses as related to archaeological discoveries from Egypt uh, relating to um, the very early years of Moses. So you want to stick around for that. Before that, though, I do want to get to an article that appeared in the Times of Israel a couple of weeks ago, and it relates very much to what I talked about last week, about David and choosing Jerusalem, uh, the biblical narrative there, and, and why David did that, and how he did that, and and the fact that this was very early on in his in his reign over the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and how he did establish Jerusalem as both the political center and also the religious center. And one of the key aspects to establishing it as the religious center was the movement of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. And as I mentioned last week, uh, that Ark was in the tabernacle at Shiloh. But then it was lost during the time of Eli and his sons. This is before the time of Samuel, before they, or right during the time of Samuel, I should say, his early life. And it was lost to the Philistines because it was being treated like an idol. It was being treated just as the nations around treated their gods. It was taken into battle against the Philistines. And it was thought that that would deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. But obviously God doesn't work that way. And so the ark was taken it was it was passed around five different Philistine cities before eventually it was um, allowed to travel back into Israelite territory. The Philistines did not want it because they uh, all manner of sicknesses came upon them in the cities at which the ark went, and so they let it go back to Israel. And eventually it would wind up in a place called Kirjath Jerim or Kiryat Yerim. I'm just going to say Kirjath Jerim, I think, uh, during this, this uh, part of today's segment. And it would stay there for a number of years, all through King Saul's reign. It would be separated from the tabernacle. It would not go into the tabernacle. That ended up being in Gibeon. But it would uh, stay there until David brought it into the city of Jerusalem, into a tent that he had made for it by the Gihon Spring. And this excavation that's just been taking place over the past year or so, and has been reported in the Times of Israel, is this location of kirjath Jerem. The archaeologists that are excavating there, the main archaeologist that excavates there is, is um, Israel Finkelstein. He's from Tel Aviv University, and he's a known proponent, proponent of the biblical minimalist theory that really has done away with the historicity of King David as the Bible describes him. And um, no doubt the discoveries from this kirjath Jerem um, are not going to con- confirm the biblical record. That would be impossible given the archaeologist that is excavating and reporting from there. 
And this is very important to to realize um, that archaeology, of course, is open um, for interpretation a lot of the time, archaeological discoveries, that is. And a lot of the time, the the uh, the bias of the archaeologist is does play into the way that they will report on it, the way that they will describe what they find, and their prior notions a lot of the time do come into their reasonings, their rationale, and you see that so evidently in this piece in Times of Israel. I'm trying. I'm going to try and not make it confusing for you to read into some of the interpretation of the discovery, discoveries that they've made, because it is very confusing. This article is written by Amanda Borshal-Dan, and we uh, have quoted her from her before. She is one of the best archaeological writers, and, and almost every time I come away from reading one of her articles, I understand what, what she is getting at. I understand the main arguments of the, of the archaeologists themselves. I understand the historic context for what they're finding. She does a really good job at laying that out. And yet I come away from this article and it's very confusing to me. It's very confusing to me exactly what the archaeologists believe or on what basis they make their claims. I'm just going to get into the article now. It's entitled Biblical Site Tied to the Ark of the Covenant Unearthed at Convent in Central Israel. And so this is talking about um, Kirjath Jerem. It starts out this way, a massive 8th century BCE man-made platform, so we're in the 700s, discovered at a Catholic convent in central Israel, may have served as an ancient shrine to the Ark of the Covenant, said leading Tel Aviv University archaeologist Israel Finkelstein. Unearthed at Kirjath Jerem, the shrine gives potential new insight into the political machinations of the sibling kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And this is what they found. Remains of a monumental elevated podium have been unearthed on a Judean hilltop long associated with the biblical Kirjath Jerem. According to the Hebrew Bible, the spot was the 20-year home of the legendary Ark of the Covenant until taken by King David and paraded to Jerusalem. So this is... Uh, this is what the Bible says about this location, and there's no way, no reason to to say that this isn't Kirjath Jerem. It certainly seems like it's in the right spot, and it's got the right archaeology. It seems so. That's probably that's probably the case. Um, but what's interesting about this, as we'll see from from Finkelstein and and from this article, is that he obviously doesn't believe in the biblical narrative. He's a pro-northernist. Uh, he he excavated in Megiddo and a lot of other places. Um, he's a highly intelligent individual, um, and he has come up with a number of theories. And a lot of a lot of what he is writing now, it seems, is that he thinks that the northern kingdom was good and great and, and wonderful, and it was the southern kingdom that was borrowing plenty of ideas from the northern kingdom, and they even stole some of the history of the northern kingdom and wrote it into their southern kingdom uh, history. He's obviously been a big antagonist for, uh, when referring to the, the findings from Kir- Kirbet Kaiapha, that site and the, the Shafala that is a single period site from King David's time. The archaeologists say there uh, that excavated it's from King David's time and it's a Judean kingdom. And that would be David. And he comes along and he has a bunch of different theories. And the latest one was that it was actually the kingdom from Saul. 
the kingdom of Saul, because anything from what different than what the Bible says. And of course, to him, Saul is from Benjamin, and he ruled over the northern tribes because his kingdom eventually was going to northern tribes plus Judah. And then when he his dynasty, when Saul died, was um, Ishbosheth or Ishbaal. He just ruled over the northern kingdom. And so he's he's very pro-Northern Kingdom, apparently, which flies in the face of what the Bible says a lot of the time, because the Southern Kingdom, though it wasn't in many cases as big as the Northern Kingdom, that is where the righteous kings were. That's where the temple was. That's where the Davidic dynasty was. And as the Bible relays, that's where God's rule on earth was coming from at that time, from the Southern Kingdom, not the Northern Kingdom. And... Uh, Finkelstein obviously believes that was written into the story uh, far after the, the the timing of the events that the Bible purports to describe. Let's just talk about this, this excavation here. Uh, continuing from this article, though, it says, The joint expedition by Tel Aviv University and College de France is not on the trail of the elusive Ark, however. Indeed, Finkelstein, the Diggs co-director, does not believe the Ark of the Covenant existed. Okay. Okay. So in these first three paragraphs, I mean, it's really interesting. You get kind of get an idea at, at the difficulties that he's going to have to face talking about this site. One, he said that they found a massive, they found a massive, uh, raised podium that was probably, um, it served as an ancient shrine to the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant never existed. So it's a shrine to the Ark that was there apparently at some time before, but it didn't exist. So maybe it was it was a shrine to the memory of the Ark being there. That's what he's saying. We'll get to that. The, the large elevated platform, <clears throat> Finkelstein believes, was constructed by the Northern Kingdom as a shrine to the biblical story of the Ark. Quote, the excavations at Kirjath-Jerim shed light on the strength of Israel, the Northern Kingdom, in the early 8th century, including possibly its domination of Judah. They also illuminate an important theme in the Bible, the Ark and its history. And so what's what's interesting about this location, Kirjath-Jerim, it is right on the border between Israel and Judah. And again, they're not finding something from the time that the Ark was there. This is a couple hundred years after the Ark was there. Um, but notice that he's already associating this this site and this magnificent construction of this raised podium to the kingdom in Israel and not to Judah, even though it could be both. It could be both, basically. Let's continue reading. That is, uh, the elevated rectangular podium, reports the archaeologist, can be re- reconstructed to have been circa 150 to 110 meters in size and covering an area of 1.6 hectares. So this is huge. This is rather large. Um, created with typical Iron Age walls, three meters wide, which stand at two meters high, and it's oriented exactly north to south. So you've got these, the base of this platform three meter wide walls and covering about 1.6 hectares. And it's perfectly aligned with, with the points of the compass. It is an oddity in the kingdom of Judah, which according to the Bible once ruled Kirjath-Jerim. So we know that Judah did rule over King Kirjath-Jerim at some, at some point, even though it was on the border territory. Finkelstein and his co-directors believe the platform may have been built as a shrine, may have been a shrine, sorry, built by the Northern Kingdom in commemoration of the Ark of the Covenant story, a compelling narrative that speaks to a tradition shared with the kingdom of Judah. 
And so, uh, quoting Finkelstein now, a northern affiliation of the site in the early 8th century is not that surprising because of the domination of Israel over Judah at that time and as the Ark narrative in the book of Samuel seems to be of northern origin. Okay. So this is just really confusing to me um, because it seems that they've got this massive structure that was built in memory of an ark that never existed in a kingdom uh, of the north, not Judah, uh, when when all the historical documents we have, that is the Bible that discusses the ark, it relates it purely, yes, to, to Shiloh when the ark was there, but then talks about it being a... Uh, an object that the kingdom of Israel, uh, sorry, kingdom of Judah, brought from this location, and then it was located by the Gihon Spring, and then in the Temple of Solomon all the way, it seems, until Jerusalem was destroyed. That's what we get from just a simple reading of the Bible. But all of that is out with this. Instead, we have uh, Kirjath-Jerim, which for some reason he doesn't associate with the southern kingdom, when it could be, this could be a mass, massive platform that was built. And this, when the Southern Kingdom was over this city, it, it is entirely possible. Uh, he has, there's a complete paucity of, um, of finds related to this raised platform that would tell you whether it's from Judah or the Northern Kingdom. So there's no evidence either way. He just feels like since we have raised platforms like in Samaria, um, in the Northern Kingdom, and we haven't found one yet in the Southern Kingdom, Therefore, this must be a northern kingdom uh, construction. The big problem is, during this time period, it was difficult for the northern kingdom to construct such a thing, given the Assyrians were, were in town. You did have the rule of, of Jeroboam II, I guess, where it could be related to him. Um, nevertheless, I don't really feel like we need to say who built this thing. I think some of the reasoning, the rationale behind uh, the, the archaeologists' conclusions is what is extremely worrying because he is basing a lot of discussion on the lack of evidence. He's saying here, we have a biblical tradition from Judah, that is the Southern kingdom, that they had everything to do with the ark, that the ark came to this place, left and went to Jerusalem into the temple. That is obviously out as being true. Obviously it was, the ark was important, but it was important because it was a Northern tradition. He says that the Jews, when they wrote the Bible, then copied. And here we have this town that is said to have located the ark in the Jewish version of the story, but it never did. It never did. Instead, what we have found in, in the archeological record, as he would say, is a raised platform that we speculate was a shrine that was built to the memory of the Ark by the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Now, this is just like, I'd, it's hard. It's hard to produce a theory with less historical backing than that. And really, it's, a, it's an example of uh, when you discount the Bible as being accurate in any way, you have to come up with a different theory and his his theories are are becoming more and more aloof from e from even the mainstream position. I mean, I've read numerous uh, commentators uh, discussing Finkelstein's finding and findings and conclusions from this excavation, and even even they seem uh, to to be wondering uh, for what basis he is making some of these claims. On what basis he's making some of these claims? 
It's like he's so wedded to his dogma of the Bible and Davidic history of being accurate and the, the kingdom of Judah reflecting uh, and writing about an accurate record of history that he has to come up with a completely foreign version of events of, of history from the time of the Bible that is completely unwedded to historical reality. To the point that others that were in his camp, I would say 10 years ago, are looking at this and thinking, wow, that's a pretty far out claim. You mean to tell me that uh, this kingdom of, I of Israel from the north built this in the 8th century, this massive construction that would have taken a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money to build. They built it in the 8th century, and why did they do it? Because there was a northern kingdom memory of the ark located on this site, a memory that wasn't based in historical reality, because according to him, the ark never existed anyway. Now, I think this is just a, another example of how when you get so wedded to your own ideas that are completely unhinged from biblical truth and biblical, uh, the biblical narrative, as described uh, there in the pages of Chronicles, Kings, Samuel, uh, then you are going to find yourself uh, cornered, even from a logical standpoint, at being able to produce sound arguments. Sound rational arguments. It becomes harder and harder and harder to make it all fit. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of this platform. I don't know all the ins and outs of biblical history or, or where this, how this platform fits into Kirjath Jerem. But some of these theories that are being espoused by the excavators there, they are taking great aim at the biblical narrative at the time of King David, such a precious time in biblical history as we covered last week. And I really would encourage you, if you didn't listen to last week's program, to go back and uh, and listen to that. I'll leave it in the show notes to make it easy for you to get there. I've received a lot of positive feedback from the show, so thank you very much for those of you that sent in your emails. If you would like to send in feedback, you can do so by writing your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Christopher Reams about an article he's re recently written on the historicity of the early years of Moses. We'll be right back. This is Watch Jerusalem on kpcg.fm. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm here on the line with Christopher Reams. He's our archaeologist and uh, novice historian uh, from England. He is there on the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College from our recording studios just outside Stratford-upon-Avon. And uh, he's written an article for us. It's entitled Moses's Ark of the Bulrushes. And it talks a lot about the very beginning of Moses's life and the biblical narrative and it discusses whether we can actually find historical corroboration for the beginning of Moses's life. Thanks for joining us, Chris. No problem. It's good to be back. Yeah, Chris was away in New Zealand 
for a month or so, but now he's back in England. And while he was away, of course, he continued to write these articles. But now that he's back in the studio, we can have him talk about it and enlighten us on some of these details that that I had never really considered or never really researched. But your article is, is pretty compelling to talk about uh, in showing that Moses's early life really does add up um, with some historical uh, the artifacts that have been found. I wonder if you can talk a bit about this arc of the bulrushes. Sure. Well, the uh, the article that I've written uh, starts out by talking about the parallels, the historical parallels that we see uh, to what happened to Moses. Now, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the story. Uh, uh, the Pharaoh had issued a decree that all male babies were to be killed uh, Moses's parents uh, raised the child and hid him for the first few months before realizing we, we can't keep doing this any longer. Uh, they, they put him in a uh, papyrus basket and basically set him afloat on the Nile River uh, and just left it in God's hands, really, to, to see that the baby boy would be preserved. So on the, uh, on the so- face of it, that sounds pretty fantastic. It does sound <laughs> that, pretty. That you, 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 one, you've got this thing that'll float down the river, and two, you're just like, well, we'll see what happens. Put our precious baby to to flight, and uh, and we'll go from there. Right. It does sound pretty fantastical, and and that's what a lot of people think of regarding these biblical stories. Like, there's no way there's any evidence for any of this. Well, actually, there there is some compelling evidence that does point to an event like this happening, and. Uh, so this this article, Moses' Ark of Bulrushes, uh, we start out by talking about some of the historical parallels for this story. And it's actually quite well attested to in history and in archaeology. There was an artifact, an Assyrian artifact that was found dating to the uh, 7th century BCE. And it talks about Sargon of Akkad. So he he's a ruler from, from much earlier on. But this late rendition, so from the 7th century BCE, is a description that neatly parallels what the Bible describes happening to Moses. And if I can just read a little section of this uh, this tablet, it says, My high priestess mother conceived me, in secret she bore me. She set me in a basket of rushes, with bitumen she sealed my lid. She cast me into the river which rose over me. The river bore me up and carried me to Aki, the drawer of water. And basically the tablet continues on talking about how he was drawn up out of the water and taken in by Ishtar. So here we have a story very similar to the biblical account where Moses' parents put him in the basket, basically seal it over uh, so so it's watertight and set it afloat, Uh, after which the, the Egyptian princess finds the basket and then uh, draws Moses up out of the water and raises him. Uh, There are a number of other parallel stories along these lines as well, not just from Assyria. There's an Indian Sanskrit epic uh, that's believed to date to around the same time, although the earliest portion of text uh, is from about 400 BCE. And again, it talks about a similar story uh here's here's a few so so are these just one second so these uh historical accounts um outside the bible these parallels that you're talking about are they some type of mythological thing in their description or are they describing a historical act in their cultures or what basically a mythological story here uh centered on uh, a, a central hero 
figure. So we've got the central hero figure and, and the story is being applied to them. It's applied to uh, this this Indian story about the hero Kana. It's, it's applied in several Greek histories uh, about Oedipus and... Uh, uh, the the story of Apollo and Creusa's baby boy. Uh, there's even the Romulus and Remus story from Rome. So basically centering these uh, parallel narratives, narratives that read very similarly to a hero figure. So we can see on the whole, these are mythological, but what they do point to is a certain uh, original source event that inspired these later cultures, these later stories to come out and replicate it by attaching it to their own nation's hero. So uh, Sargon of Akkad, uh, uh, the, the Indian Sanskrit epic that talks about a similar thing, covering a basket with, with wax. So let's just talk about this basket itself, because um, I think that's interesting. We have a picture up uh, on Watch Jerusalem of a we basket. Uh, is it possible? Yep. I mean, we talk in archaeology in Jerusalem, we don't really find many fragments of uh, things that aren't made out of stone because they, they disintegrate. But I guess in Egypt, they have found things dated from this period. Right. Uh, and do take a look at this article and check out the picture. It's actually really fa fascinating. This basket that we've got a picture of, dozens and dozens of these things have been found, papyrus-type baskets, very similar to what uh, Moses would have been placed in, as described in the Bible. This basket that we've got a picture of uh, is from exactly that time period, around 1480 BCE. So, okay, maybe a decade or two later. It's nothing in the grand scheme of things. So this basket is about 3,500 years old, wow. and it looks like it was made yesterday. Yep. Uh, just really beautiful uh, woven basket. And that's the thing with a lot of uh, Egyptian artifacts, Egyptian archaeology, is because it's such a dry, arid climate. Uh, things are preserved amazingly well. Uh, sand covering objects, preserving things really well. So that's certainly the case uh, with this Egyptian basket. And while we can't say for certain this was the basket that carried Moses, obviously, uh, it's it gives a unique insight into what could have carried Moses, a similar type object. So that, that means that, obviously, the, the, the historical narrative here in the Bible of Moses being put in a basket, we have those baskets from that time period. We have the parallel historical right. accounts, yep. I guess, of, of others. You, and you would say that they were copying the story of Moses for their hero stories, uh, be, yes. it, be it the Assyrians or, or what have you. What other evidence do we have of Moses... Um, from that time period related to the story of, of uh, being in this, this arc of the bulrushes, as you call it? Sure. There are, uh, there are a few other evidences, really interesting evidences that, put, uh, that, that, that help illustrate the story of Moses as being authentic. A lot of people like to dismiss it, say it was written a thousand years after the event. But actually, the story of Moses really precisely fits the time period and one of one of those proofs is in the name itself, Moses. This this name is pure gold from a linguistic point of view, and it actually parallels a lot of Egyptian names from this very specific period. Parallels a lot of royal Egyptian names. So the names Moses, Moshe uh, in the Hebrew, and Mose uh, uh, are all interchangeable. 
and what they mean is born. Yeah, I don't know if our audience is aware of this, but Moses or Mose isn't isn't a Hebrew name itself, is it? That's an Egyptian name. No, and it's a it's a very well attested to element of uh, of typical royal names from the uh, Egyptian royal court. So it's interesting that you have this name popping up for this this boy who was adopted by an Egyptian princess. And later on in the article, it talks it it uh, talks about the possible princess herself, who she may have been, and it makes sense uh, because surrounding her, surrounding her family, were a number of different people with this name element as a part of their royal name. So Tutmoses or Tutmos, as he's called, Amos, Ramos, Wajmos, different types of the name with the Mos element, which again means to be born. Or drawn, and you'll remember in the Bible story, uh, the princess picks up the baby and calls him Moses because she has drawn him of water. So she's drawn or born him. So the the name matches the the archaeological record and the biblical account. So these names um, do they exist in a later a later Egyptian history, or are they specifically confined to the time period of of Moses? The Bible says that he existed. They're generally com- confined to this time of Moses. Uh, I'm not sure as to later uses. It's definitely not common. Uh, you, you find a whole slew of them from the 15th century BC around that time period. Uh, later on, if they do use them at all, it would be sort of hearkening back to this this time period or trying to hearken back to these this time of greatness. Uh, but certainly not common at all like it, like it was. So in the biblical story, um, she picks this baby out and she knows it's a Hebrew. And uh, could you just speak to how she makes that identification? Uh, yeah, well, I think several of our listeners may have uh, cottoned on to what, how she may have uh, known that it was a Hebrew child. And that is because he must have been circumcised. Uh, the, it, obviously, it's the Hebrew tradition to circumcise on the eighth day. That that was the command that God gave to Abraham. And so it makes sense that seeing this baby, she would have realized it was a baby of the Hebrews. Now, the Egyptians had lots of slaves. This could have been the baby of any number of races or nationalities that they had enslaved. So uh, the fact that she could pick it up and know immediately that it was a Hebrew baby is really telling that... Uh, Basically, this, 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 this circumcision early on in the baby's life was going on. And you look at the, the Egyptian records, the Egyptians were actually circumcised, or at least some of them were. But then you look uh, in terms of the time when they did this, several wall depictions have, have quite graphic displays of this. They circumcised their people when they were adults, or at least uh, adolescents, uh, an extremely painful sounding thing. But uh, there was a real difference there between between the way it, it was done for the Hebrews and the way it was done for the Egyptians. So she would have been able to pick up the baby and realize, OK, this is a Hebrew baby because he's circumcised. Yeah, this this story in the Bible, it gives so many details that, you know, if, there, if this was a made up story, you wouldn't expect it to check out with with so many historical parallels as it does something so simple and seemingly insignificant in a way um, as Moses, the baby, the Hebrew baby being placed in a, a, a thing of reeds or a, 
a papyrus basket and then picked up and being called Mose, which means to draw out, which is a he, which is a, um, a an Egyptian word or Egyptian name that exists just during this period. You also have in your conclusion here a really tantalizing other bit of evidence as well from the biblical narrative that that shows that it was accurate uh, and accurately depicting events from the, the the middle of the second millennium BCE. Yes, uh, this this little tidbit right at the end, we talk about a an ancient Egyptian slave list. Uh, I believe this is from quite early on, so around the 17th century BCE, and it refers to a slave named Shifra. Now, this name is actually used uh, in this form in Exodus 1 verse 15. One of the Hebrew midwives is called Shifra. Now, it seems this Shifra is a, a different Shifra. Uh, it seems like this one was slightly earlier than the one described in Exodus 1 verse 15, but it shows the long period of slavery in which the Hebrews were in Egypt, and it shows uh, archaeological attestation for the Hebrews being there in the fact that you've got this Hebrew name attested to in the Bible being on the slave list. Um, a lot of people look at this Egyptian history and say there's no evidence for the Exodus. There's no evidence for Israel and Egypt. Israel was just some kind of culture that emerged within Canaan. Well, you do have these different little tidbits here and there uh, to do with even just the name Shifra on a slave list or to do with the, the, the contextual story around Moses being drawn of the water, the, the, the way in which he was put into a papyrus basket, and then that story being preserved in different forms throughout the later centuries. So there really is a growing body of evidence that shows that, yes, this is exactly what happened. This is just as the Bible described uh, this, this slavery within Egypt and then this freedom as the Israelites were led out by the hand of, of Moses. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for bringing our attention to this article and, and taking the time to research into it. I think it'll be very enlightening for our listeners. Please do take the time to read the article itself, not just listen to this program, so you can gather more of the details and see the pictures uh, of these artifacts as well related to this story, Moses' Ark of the Bulrushes. It's on watchjerusalem.co.il. We'll leave a link for you also in the show notes, so you can simply click on that and it'll take you directly to it. That's all we have time for in today's show. Thanks very much to Chris for coming on. Thank you very much, Brent. And if you'd like to send some feedback to him or me, you can email letters at watchjerusalem.co.il and they'll get to us and we'll do our best to write back to you. Thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you next week.